0: Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, September 6th, 2020, we continue our new series titled, The Ideal, A Study in Colossians. Today's sermon, The Ideal Savior, will be taught to us by Pastor Bob Wade out of Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Enjoy. The passage we're looking at this morning is essentially the most significant statement on who Jesus is in all of the scriptures. Now, I, I, don't, I don't wanna just say that and let you run past that really fast. This is the most significant statement on who Jesus is in all of the scriptures. And there's nothing quite like this. What's so interesting, though, about this passage is it actually, it's unusual, is it doesn't have any commands. You know, one of the first things that happens when when we stop and as I'm preparing for like this message is the first thing you do is you sit down and you look for the verbs or or the you know the imperatives there. You're looking for something that tells you, as a result of this, I'm supposed to do this, but there's none in this. Which tells me that the primary thing that needs to happen today has to do up here in your mind, it has to do with what you believe. You see, Colossians has a lot of that. If you go back to chapter one and verse 10, it tells you that we ought to be increasing in our knowledge of God. Sometimes it's just important that you get things worked out, straightened out here so that you know what to do when you're challenged. And the Colossians were challenged. You see, who Jesus is, is absolutely, knowing who he is, is absolutely crucial to our faith. And so what happened was the early church actually took these verses, verses 15 through 20, and they took them and they actually made them a hymn. What they did was they, 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 they started memorizing this, singing this so they could have it down so that when they were challenged and they were challenged in their society, maybe a lot like you. Maybe there's somebody in your neighborhood, somebody in your family, somebody at work, somebody at school that's really challenging your faith, that they could really answer those questions and so they memorized it. You know, the challenge that the church in Colossae was facing truthfully is the same challenge that we face today. People today have all sorts of thoughts about who Jesus is. The sad part is is that typically what the scriptures say about Jesus tend to be in the lowest denominator of that. People believe that Jesus was some kind of a mystic that he was special some way. They don't really know how to categorize that. But probably less than God the Father. They would say he's a prophet. Some would just say, well, I just think he was a revolutionary. Maybe he was just sort of taken out of context, you know, and maybe they sort of hijacked his message and, and where he was going through all of that. And certainly people would say, well, he was a good moral example. Oh, great teacher. Whoa, what a motivator of people. One group today would even say, well, Jesus was just an exalted man. I mean, you could reach the level of Jesus and populate your own planet someday if you're faithful enough. I gotta be honest with you, that's heresy. It's not just wrong. It goes against every single thing that the scriptures teach about who Jesus is. Enough so that Paul would moved by God to write to the, Col- the Colossians so they could get this straight because who Jesus is matters, both theologically and relationally. You see, the problem in Colossae was stemmed from a group of philosophers that had sort of wormed their way and or infiltrated into the church, a group of people called the Gnostics, and their philosophies weren't just skewed a little bit. They weren't just different. I mean, they were heretical on just about everything that we believe. For example, you know, as a Christian, grace is a really important thing to us. The whole idea of God's grace really matters. I mean, that's what the scriptures teach us in Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and nine, it says, for by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it's a gift from God. So as Christians, we believe God saves us by grace, not by the actions that you and I do but that God graciously imparts his goodness to us and saves us. Now, the Gnostics, they thought this whole idea of grace and unmerited favor was just ridiculous. Just absolutely below God. The thought that God will allow people into heaven that didn't deserve to be there is foolish. I mean, why would God do that? To them, they thought, you know, no, no. The way you get into heaven is through your intellect. See, you gotta figure these things out. You gotta go find the answers out to the things that are out there, not faith. No, you, you, you need to search for God and you need to look for all the little clues and the little you know, hidden secret things and, and put those things all together until you can come up with this, this truth that you can really hold on to and you need to make sacrifices and you need to go on pilgrimages because all these things will add up together and take you to where you need to be. Listen, nothing could be further wrong with that biblically, I mean, nothing. Colossians 1.12 tells us that it is the Father who qualifies us, who delivers us, who transforms us. The Gnostics also believed that only spirit was good. And because God is spirit, well, God is good, but matter is all bad. Well, your flesh is matter, this, this, this is matter, the floor is matter, the earth is matter, all of that is bad. So if you logically put things together, God would never take something good and something bad and mix it together, he just wouldn't do that. And so God would never allow his son to be born into human flesh, let alone be born in a stable and come and walk among broken, sinful people and ultimately die for them. And so in their world and their thinking, again, which is attacking the, you know, the churches all of through Asia Minor, That Jesus could not be fully God and fully man. Some kind of a weird thing there, but couldn't be that. It also meant that God couldn't have created the world himself. They believed that God was sort of responsible for the world being created, but because the world, it tells us in Genesis 1-1, was created formless and void, that formless and void would be below God. He would never do that. He would never create something bad and just leave it alone like that, so that he didn't do it. So God literally would use a proxy, someone that would be lower than him, a lesser deity. That's who the Gnostics thought Jesus was. Less, lesser than God, below God, not the same. That's the context here in verses 15 through 20. Now the reason why that matters so much is it's actually the context of the world that we live in today. I mean, you mentioned Jesus and it's almost fighting words. You can talk about God because that's sort of an ethereal concept to people, but you mention Jesus today and it's sort of a fighting word because as Christians we believe you know, he actually came and actually died on a cross, came out of the grave, it's empty. So people wanted to devalue that all the time. And so when you get here to verses 15 through 20, and Paul is gonna give us 10 truths about Jesus here that we're gonna put into three different categories. Let's read the passage together and we'll jump into this. Verse 15 says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, like I said, we're gonna divide this into three categories here, these 10 truths. The first category here has to do, is simply in verse 15, it has to do with Jesus and the Father. And the truth, the first truth here in verse 15 is he, talking about Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of the Father that you and I cannot see. Now it's a really interesting word here because the Greek word for image is the word Icon. Uh, You've already, you've, you've probably heard that word before. You've probably used it even a time or two before. An icon, really what it means is statue. But it means a statue that's done so well and so perfectly that it is the exact representation of the person. You know, maybe sometime you went to, uh, you know, one of those wax museums and you saw sort of that icon of the person where they made it, it would kind of show you how tall they were and how big they were, all those, you know, those things like that, It'd give you an idea. This would be a little bit more like, like the idea of looking in a mirror. You can see the subject if you look into the mirror, who's there? That's the icon, you say, well, that's not all that weird. Aren't we created in the image of God? Yes, Genesis 1 actually says that you and I are created in the image of God. We are the icon of God, but we are not a perfect image. We are a broken one, one that doesn't last forever, one that unfortunately gets old and dies. And, and you know, we, we, we hope and pray for the day when God gives us his brand new body. I mean, so that's, you know, we're, we're not a perfect icon, but Jesus is. He is the absolute, accurate image of the Father. And you know, here's the important thing. It didn't come on him at his birth. He's always been that. Hebrews 1.3 says he is the radiance of his glory. Philippians 2.6 says he is the very form of God. Jesus is the full and the final and complete revelation of the Father in human flesh. You Want to know how I know that? Jesus said it. John chapter 14, verse seven. Listen to Jesus' words. If you'd have known me, you'd have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. Those are pretty clear words. Now, the second thing you see here, the second truth here also is in verse 15. It says he is the firstborn of creation. Firstborn here is the Greek word protokos. It's where we get the word prototype. When you think of a prototype, you think, oh, that's the original, that's the best, that's the, the idea, that's the perfect model. That's the standard. But it also speaks of his rank and his supremacy. Culturally, you know, in our culture, when we say, well, somebody is the firstborn, we go, oh, well, you're the first one out of the womb, But biblically, firstborn doesn't mean firstborn out of the womb. Biblically, what it means is the first in rank. For example, the nation of Israel is called God's firstborn. That wasn't the first, I mean, if you know history at all, you know that there were other nations that came before Israel. But they were first in rank because they were God's people. David, King David, Psalm 89 tells us that David is called the firstborn. Well, if you know anything about the story of David, you'll know that, you know, David's father, Jesse, when when God said, I'm gonna look for a new king, you know, and and he sends the prophet in there to look for the new king, he's so low on the totem pole that he doesn't even bother inviting him because he's the eighth son. And yet, in God's eyes, he's the firstborn. Why? Because it has to do with rank. Now, The second category starts off in verses 16 and 17 and that has to do with Jesus in the universe. Look what he says, starting in verse 16. He says, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. The third truth here you see in verse 16 is Jesus is the creator of all things. Now let me tell you what that means. He created everything. Ex nihilo. That's a term that you maybe have heard some things before. Ex nihilo means out of nothing. Now let me tell you why that's a really big deal. I'm not all that skilled, but I can remember taking wood shop in school, and they would say, hey, you're gonna make a, you know, a doghouse. And I would take you know, the wood that they gave me, and I would cut it up, and I would you know, place it together, and nail it here or there, and cut, you know, do all the different things, and I could make a doghouse. If you gave me the parts, If you gave me the matter, I could maybe produce something, right? That's what we can do as human beings. But the passage here tells us that by him all things were created. That means even the mass, even the rock, the dirt, the metals, all those things, everything was created by him. All matter was created by God. And the reason why we know that is because verse 17 says that he existed before all things. You ever heard of the law of causality? If you can remember back when you were in college and you had a philosophy class, you had to deal with this one law. It basically means you can't get something out of nothing something had to start everything. The only exception to that would be the uncaused cause. In other words, something or someone separate from the finite universe had to be before everything else, someone that would have no start date whatsoever. And so what the world has basically said is, well, see, there were aliens. They came from some other place, you don't know anything about them, and they kinda started all this stuff and got it going, and now they just fly around in their little saucers and they you know, try to figure out if we can ever get close to them. Verse 17 tells us that it was Jesus. That Jesus is before all things. John chapter one verse three says, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made that was made. Hebrews chapter one verse two says, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he had created the world. Jesus' own testimony even tells us this. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 13, he says, I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. In other words, I was the one that was before all things. Now, verse 17 gives us a fourth truth, and that is that he is the sustainer of all things. That he sustains everything. He's the one that holds it together. He's the one that makes it live. The fact that the world needs to be sustained will tell you off, right off the bat that it's not eternal. He's the one that, that preserves it, maintains all of everything, and holds everything together. In fact, if you think about how intricate life and the universe really are, it's actually amazing that he would maintain all those things. In fact, I, I did this little you know, thing, I, I walked around the office and I said, what do you think life requires? And the most common answer is water and air requires water and air. Well, that sounds really, really simple, right? And then you go back and you study it and you realize that life requires 11 different elements. Oxygen, carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, sulfur, sodium. I, I always like reading that part because I like salt personally on things and it makes me feel better, like I'm okay, really. Um, sodium, magnesium, potassium, calcium, chlorine, and phosphorus, and not all the same mix like a little bit of this and a lot of this and some of this and put this all together and that that a perfect mix of things come together and create life. And without that perfect mix, you die. God creates that. God maintains that. God makes sure the mixture is perfect and not just for us, for the entire universe. I mean, sometimes it's for things that we would never even think about. For example, The Earth's distance to Jupiter, I gotta be honest with you, until last week, I never really thought about the Earth's distance to Jupiter. I realize that's really shallow, but I didn't, you know, it was never really like a big deal for me. But you know what? As I started reading about this, if the Earth were any further away from Jupiter, the Earth would be unprotected from both asteroids and comets colliding with the Earth, resulting in catastrophic loss of life. But if the Earth were closer, Jupiter's gravity would destabilize the Earth's orbit, making uncontrollable weather changes so severe that all life would be lost. God just puts things together perfectly. Amen. The ozone layer. You know if the ozone layer were any stronger, not enough LTV radiation would be able to reach the Earth. LTV radiation is absolutely necess- It's a total necessity for, for produce to grow and for life essential you know, minerals to be able to form. But if the ozone layer were any weaker, every living creature would get skin cancer and die. Everything in this universe is this, in this amazing balance of things that God keeps exactly sustaining perfectly. Now, there's a third part here. A third section here, in verses 18 through 20, and that's about Jesus and the church. Look at verse 18, it says, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now the fifth truth here, the fifth truth, is that Jesus is the head of the church. He is our authority. We follow his direction, not the direction of man. Let me take a step back here because I want to make sure that in case you you don't think that I'm reading from the Bible here. We don't follow a political party. We don't. We're not gonna follow the, the Democrats or the Republicans, we don't. If they line up with what God's word says, great, wonderful. Praise God, we're thankful for that. But the truth is we follow the book. We are called to be people of the book. And that means we trust that he is the sovereign Lord of all things. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. That's not really very popular right now. Well, if you're not standing for, you're standing against it. Well, so say you. Where's what we're standing for? We're standing on God's word, and that's it. God is the one is our authority. He is the head of the church. He is the one that ultimately we stand before and answer to. Now verse 18 also gives us the sixth truth. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Let me translate what that means. He is the first resurrection to a glorified body, to an eternal glorified body. Jesus is not the first person to come back from the dead, but he is the first one to come back in a glorified body, and this is an issue of rank. In fact, Paul even talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Okay, listen to what he says starting in verse 20. He says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, those who have died. So he calls him there the first fruits of those who have died and come back. That term, first fruits, again, has everything to do with rank. Because in verses 21 and 22, he starts and he says, Look, I just want you to understand something. By one man, death entered into life, by Adam. And so is in Adam, everybody that's just in Adam is gonna die. But also by one man did also, did life come in because one man resurrected from the dead, Jesus. Now in verse 23, he'll put this together, he says, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. There's the issue of rank, supremacy. Then at his coming, those who belong to belong to Christ, that's us. We're not before Christ. He is the first fruits. Verse 18 gives us the seventh truth. He is the preeminent one. Now, preeminent is not a really common word. I would seriously doubt in the last week any of you have used that word, right? I mean, we don't go, hey, you know, listen, what are you gonna do for lunch? I don't know, we're gonna go to this place because they, the, they got the preeminent cheeseburger. we're gonna go for that. No, we don't do that, okay? The word is way higher than that. It just doesn't mean good or great or excellent or even best in your mind. The word basically means no one else always wins. That's who he is. He does not lose. All things are his, and he rules over everything. It's an amazing line. I I love this line in the worship song, Beautiful Name. I mean, would you put the words up there? I mean, we're gonna sing this in a few minutes, but this is one of the best examples of that word preeminent I can possibly think of. You have no rival, you have no equal. No one is a match for our God, no one. Now imagine this, in Colossae, these people were questioning all these things, and the believers were coming out going, no, no one matches our God. There, that's not just poetic wording. It's an incredible explanation of who Jesus is. He has no rival, no equal. No one is on par with him. He is not just a savior, he's not even just the savior. He is not just a Lord, he is the Lord. And the truth is, he is Lord whether you recognize it or not. Right. In fact, let me even take it a step further. I, I'm gonna confess my own guilt here on something. Too many times I have said, well you need to make Jesus Lord of your life. That's wrong. I'm sorry, forgive me for saying that. Jesus is the Lord. The issue is, are you going to obey him? He is the Lord. Can you imagine those words? The Gnostics hearing that, what are you telling me? No, you do what you need to do, he's the Lord. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. Verse 19 gives us the eighth truth here in that he is the fullness of God. He is not sort of God, he is not partially God, he is not a lesser God, he is the fullness of God. In fact, in Hebrews chapter one, verses five through 10, there is an incredibly interesting interplay that takes place here between the father and the angels and the son here. And in there, it starts off in verse 5, and it says, For to which of the angels did God ever say? This is so, in other words, it's the Father speaking in this case. And they want to be really clear, here. the writer of Hebrews is clear. To which did, did any of the angels, because Jesus is not an angel, did any of them, did he ever say anything? Nope, never did. Verse 8, But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Now, let me make sure you got that here. The father there calls the son God. The scepter of righteousness is your scepter of your kingdom. Verse 10, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. So the father here calls the son God, the creator of all things. Verse 20, you get the ninth truth here. He is the reconciler of all things to himself. The reconciler. Now, I want to be really clear here because this could be really taken out of context if you read this wrong. This is not a statement on universalism. Some people have looked at this and said, well, see, everybody's gonna be in heaven, That's that's not the case here at all. The the reconciling doesn't always mean you fix something. Sometimes it means you make an account for you take an account for something. For example, if you ever worked at a, a store when you were growing up, and they had to stop and they would do you know go back and find out what they still had and you know what they've sold and what they they had, you would have to go and you would have to reconcile everything. Well, we sold this many of this, and this many have just walked off the shelf, so maybe they were stolen or whatever the case may be. That's what that means. It means to give an account for everything. To reconcile is the Greek word katalasso. It means to change or exchange. And in this case, it has to do with relationships. Now, here's the really good news. If you're gonna hear anything, I say, make sure you hear this part. Jesus here is the reconciler. He's come to change things, to make an exchange in our lives uh, in a relational way so that you and I, by faith, could become part of his family. That's what he came to do. Not everybody will be though. Some people will not recognize who he is until the judgment when they will at that point stop and go, he is Lord of Lords, but they'll do it grudgingly. The good news here is that Jesus has come to change our relationship with him. He has come to reconcile us to the Father. And the call is always to be reconciled to the Father. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 20 says, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to, to God. It's the cross that makes reconciliation possible. There's a 10th truth here in verse 20 that says he is the maker of peace. Well, how? Well, let me give you a really good one. If you've got your Bible, okay, chapter two here, look at verse 14. Chapter two, verse 14 in Colossians says this. He says, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. How did he make peace? Jesus nailed our sins, our wrongs, our debts, To the cross with him. That you and I could be changed. That we could be reconciled. That we could be brought into a brand new family. That we would be his. It's interesting in verse 20 when it speaks of reconciling all things, it says whether they're on earth or in heaven. You know, some people have asked, what does that mean? It means that at the cross, Jesus secured the victory of God over the entire universe. That means that the new heavens and the new earth will have no more rebel remnant whatsoever. Every single knee will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord, willingly. I'm gonna ask the worship team if they'll come and join me. Let me go backwards just for a second. You remember that I said that in verses 15 through 20 here there were no commands. The response is to believe, to believe, to be reconciled. You see, the truth is Jesus did come to die on a cross. He did shed his blood for us. He did do that to reconcile us to the Father. The question is will you be reconciled? Will you believe? The promise is, according to Romans chapter 10, verse 13, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, I think it would be wrong for us not to give you that opportunity. I'm gonna ask you right where you're at to stop and, and pray with me. I'll pray out loud. You can pray after me silently, but if God is moving you to be reconciled, to, to trust in the Lord. To recognize that he is the sovereign, holy God of the universe, the Lord of lords, the king of kings, and that he has come to reconcile you to his family. If God is speaking in your heart right now, if he's causing that heart to beat a little extra fast, maybe he's calling you today. You pray with me, I'll Pray out loud, you pray after me silently. Dear God, would you forgive me? Would you change me? Would you come to live inside of me? Would you be my Lord and my savior? Would you help me to know your love for me? Would you teach me my place in your kingdom? the purpose that you've left me here in life for. Let me ask you a question. No one's looking, but if you prayed that prayer just so that we could pray for you, would you just, if you just really quickly put your hand up and back down, that'd give me a chance to know to pray. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I wanna encourage you that after we're done, there will be some people that we down here would love to be able to talk with you. if you'd like to talk to someone about that newfound relationship or you'd just like to be sure how to do that. They're here. Father, would you make it real for those that prayed, pray that their hearts would be completely changed because of your power, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. God's word tells us that Jesus created all things, that he sustains all of it. He is the head of the church, that he is the one that reconciles us and makes peace with the Father on our behalf, that he is preeminent. The scriptures will tell us this, that there's a a way that we're supposed to respond to that. In Philippians chapter two, verse 10 and 11, it says, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue confess that Jesus is, Lord to the glory of God the Father. Church, if we believe that, worship like we believe that the King of kings and the Lord of Lord lives in our hearts. <clears throat> the early church thought that these verses were so important that they put them to memory so that they could defend the faith. We can't do any less. Our challenge to you this week is begin the process of putting those words to memory. God bless you, love you all.